It was the first day of his first class as a freshman. And Josh Wheaton eagerly took his seat in the packed lecture hall for his philosophy class. It was then that the professor announced, God is dead. This is how Professor Radisson launched into his review of the syllabus. What a joyful surprise. If each person in the class will write these words, he said, sign it, and turn it in, they can skip over the first three weeks of course material. The, the part of the class that 60% of my previous students have failed, causing them to almost fail the class overall. You can just skip over it if you will write, God is dead on a piece of paper, sign your name to it, and pass it to me here at the front of the class. Well, as Josh was sitting there, he heard every member of the class ripping paper eagerly out of notebooks, pens flashing across paper, and folks passing those pages along the row to be turned in to Professor Radisson. Everyone was excited to skip over a third of the class and to get on with the fun stuff, as Professor Radisson called it. Everyone but Josh Wheaton, who sits there with a conflicted heart. He wants to pass the class. He doesn't want to make a spectacle of himself but he sits there with his pen dangling over the piece of paper, thinking about writing those words, but unable to do it. And slowly he begins to feel all the sets of eyes in the classroom beginning to focus on him, and still he's not able to write those words. Finally, he just drops the pen and looks at his professor I can't do it, he says. I just can't do it. God is not dead. I believe in Christ, the Son of God, who is living among us. This is how the movie God's Not Dead begins. Throughout the movie, we watch as this freshman in college Josh Wheaton stands before a class of his peers to defend his faith, to make a case that God is not dead, while the critical eye and ear of his brilliant professor picks holes in each and every argument that he makes. Josh Wheaton stands before the class of his peers and answers Christ's question to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? In one particularly poignant moment, Josh is talking with Martin, another member of his philosophy class in the library. Martin says to him, Josh, why are you doing what you're doing? Josh says to him, everyone else thinks I'm crazy. My girlfriend broke up with me. My parents think I'm wasting my time and my energy. I'm going to have to work like a dog to catch up in all the rest of my classes because I'm spending so much time preparing for these lectures. 
Martin wisely looks at him and says, you have described all of the difficulties, but you have not answered my question of why. I don't, I don't know, Josh says. I, I think of Jesus as my friend. So you think Jesus Christ is God? Yeah, and the Son of God, and I don't want to disappoint him, even if everyone else thinks I should. To me, he's not dead. He's alive. And I don't want anyone to get talked out of believing in him because some professor said they should. Now, most of us will not be required to stand up the way Josh Wheaton does in this movie. Most of us will not be asked to stand in front of a group of our peers and to defend our faith. But I do believe that this scenario portrays in an exaggerated way a reality that will become more and more common in the lives of, faithful, of the faithful in this postmodern, post-Christendom world where the dominant religious institutions who used to shape our society are losing cultural relevance. Two years ago, in 2012, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life surfaced a new statistic that we have not seen before in the United States. The Pew study found, for the first time, that one in five adults in the United States said they are not a religious person. They say they cannot tolerate the current expression of the church. For the first time, one in five, 20% of the American population claims they are not religious. Further studies indicate that many of these religiously unaffiliated are not necessarily hostile to faith. They are still spiritually curious They still believe in God. They have spiritual values. They are still involved in a spiritual quest of a personal nature, just not a communal nature. So, one in five, 20% of the American population claims to be spiritual but not religious. In a world like this, it is safe to assume that someone like Martin or like Professor Radisson will come to you and say, why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you believe? Why do you go to church? Why are you going on a mission trip? Why are you baptizing that baby? It's just water. Why do you pray before you eat? Do you really believe that Jesus is God? Jesus was no stranger to questions from the spiritually curious. He and the disciples lived in a culturally diverse region of the world with people who believed and practiced many different religions. In today's passage, the disciples and Jesus have traveled east 
from the coastal region of Tyre, a major port on the Mediterranean. And what do we know about major ports? There are sailors and workers from around the world who gather. Ideas are exchanged because these people have seen the world. So Jesus and his disciples leave that major port to travel east to a smaller, quieter town called Caesarea Philippi, which was a Gentile frontier town located in the northern part of Israel. And since this was a Gentile region, issues of race and ethnicity were prevalent sources of conflict. People were very concerned about who was clean and who was unclean, and violence often erupted over the issue on a normal basis. The whole region was a powder keg under the control of the Roman Empire, so all people lived in fear of militaristic power being used to quell any demonstrations and any violence that might occur. On top of all of that, Caesarea Philippi was the home to a shrine to Pan, who, as my kids will tell you, was the Greek and Roman god of nature. So there were lots of tourists that flowed into this region to visit this shrine. It is into this complex, multicultural context that Jesus comes, trailing after him miracles like a string off a kite, the calming of the stormy seas, the feeding of the 4,000, the curing of a Canaanite woman's daughter. Jesus has done amazing things in the sight of many people. But now, in a town full of the spiritually curious Jesus wants to test his disciples. Who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus asks them. Oh, oh, that's an easy one. The disciples all shoot their hands into the air. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Oh, I'm getting these right. The disciples are so proud. Jesus accepts their answers lets them wash over him and keeps going. But who do you say that I am, Jesus says. Can you feel the awkward pause in the text? I sure can. Can you feel some of the disciples slowly beginning to look at their feet, hoping Jesus doesn't call on them? Can you feel other disciples determinately looking above his head as if they're thinking. Others slowly slinking out of Jesus' line of sight, hoping that he doesn't call on them. Until all of them are subtly nudging the other, answer, answer, before I have to say something. And then, Simon slowly raises his hand. It makes sense. He was the first to drop his nets and follow. He was the first to slide out of the boat and try to walk on the water. So it makes sense that Simon would be the first to try and answer Jesus' most direct question on the topic. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he says, 
with confidence growing as he hears his own voice. Good job, Simon. You have answered correctly, but don't let it go to your head. God was there to prompt you. The answer of your heart came from the very heart of God. And Jesus, again, doesn't dwell on the answer, but pushes beyond it. Yeah, you got it right, but now what? Well, you have proclaimed me Messiah, and now you have to go. You have to go and build up the church. One of the only times in the Gospels that the word is used right here in the Gospel of Matthew. You have to go and embody that belief so that others can take refuge in God's tender care. You have to go and embody that belief because your belief, your demonstration of faith, will help others to know who I am. Your actions that are informed by your belief are the keys of the kingdom for other people. They will help others experience the forgiveness that comes from God's own heart. Your actions are the keys of the kingdom that will help others experience the healing that flows from the love of God. In this world in which we live, that is full of the spiritually curious, we will hear Christ's question echoing in our hearts and in our lives. People just like Martin will come to you and say, why are you doing what you're doing? May our words and our actions be keys to the kingdom that help unlock God's love and compassion for all people. Who do you say that I am? Why are you doing what you're doing? Jesus says to me, I believe you are God's child. I believe you were born of love so that all of us can experience your deep and abiding love for all people. I believe you are the one who calls us, who tells us to drop what we're doing and to follow. I believe you are the one who shows us how to embrace God's love, active and present in my life. You are the one who tells me to share that love with others. I believe you are the one who has been with me in my brokenness, who has sat with me in the depths of Sheol, and you are the one who helps me to stand in spite of it. You are the one who has asked me to share my brokenness with others so that they know that no one, no one is alone in this world. I believe you are the one who helped me to, helps me to see that the world is good and filled with hope, even when the events of the world try to tell me something different. You, O oh Christ, are the one. You are the Messiah whose grace is more powerful than the sins of this world, whose grace is more powerful than anything I can do to separate me from you. I am here in this place, in this pulpit, because of that love.
I am here in this place, in this pulpit, because of the grace that has been extended through the community of your believers. I have stood in that awkward silence many, many a times. And I have found Christ to be there. In the awkward silence that is to come in these next few minutes, I invite you to listen for that question in your life. Who do you say that I am? Why are you doing what you're doing? And to turn open your bulletin to the Sacred Scribbles page and to make some of your notes, how would you answer that question? The 830 crowd did this, and I literally had to tell them to stop talking. I had to tell them to put their pencils down because it was time to move on. So I invite you to do the same. Take out a piece of paper and a pen, silence of Jesus, question together. So, Josh Wheaton had to do it. Simon Peter had to do it. Who do you say that I am? Why do you do what you do? Know that Christ accepts us just the way we are. Beautiful answers, fumbling answers, it doesn't matter. Let us turn to one another and share our experience of faith.